pray for you. Father, thank you for Stephen and Sharon and their children. Thank you for this family that serve you with their whole hearts. Thank you that this sermon has has been prepared over years and years of loving you and in time in your word and being filled by your spirit. And we pray, for, Father, now for all of us, Lord, may we come under your word. May we have hearts to hear what you are saying to us. May we hear your loving kindness over us this morning, that you're a father that wants good things for us, that you are for us, and that you want to teach us and refine us and, and mold us into being more and more like you. So Father, we just pray for Stephen now as he preaches. May it be your words, and may we hear you speak over us. Thank you, Father. Good morning, everyone. Um, as Ali said, my name is Stefan, and we've been here at One Hope now for about probably two, two and a half years or so, going on, going on our third year. Um, you know, when God um, created us, and he created us in his image, one of the manifestations of this was we were, we were given the ability to communicate. And uh, some of us, admittedly, we have um, a little bit better ability to communicate than others, and, and others we just have this sense where we can't exactly understand exactly, you know, what is, what is actually going on. So we have actually the pharmaceutical industry, I don't know if you guys were aware of this, but the pharmaceutical industry, they've actually devised something for those of us who have a little bit tougher time communicating. So take a look. At, uh, at what they did up here, you'll thank me for it later. <laughs> so, so for those of you who are suffering from um, SSL, um, spousal selective listening, I think they called it, you know, talk to your doctor before this holiday season. You'll, you're, you're welcome for those of you who maybe get help in this, in this area. But, no, in all seriousness, guys, one of, the, one of the indicators of an effective communicator is actually to focus on just a few main points when we're, when we're delivering um, a message or a talk or anything like that. You want your objectives um, not to be many, just a few of them. Um, you know, sometimes attempting to cover too much information in a sermon is not always the most effective rather we have one main point and then you would develop all of our communication around that main point and when i think of this advice the, the, this notion of don't have too many points in a sermon um, i'm struck by how it appears that jesus himself didn't seem to follow this advice you know when you think about um, the sermon on the mount which is what we've been studying we have um, arguably one of the greatest sermons ever preached, but he didn't seem to kind of observe what we call that 30-minute sermon rule, you know? You know, at first glance, it appears like maybe he tried to pack too much stuff into one sermon sitting. You know, I kind of shudder to think what kind of a grade Jesus would have gotten in 21st century preaching uh, school. But then maybe it's actually our approach to this sermon that is a bit incomplete. 
You know, as we look at Matthew 5 to 7, this is where we have been for the last uh, few weeks now. We oftentimes see a series of sermons. In fact, if you look at the, the, the slide behind me, these are some of the sermons, these are some of the series that we've been going through over the course of this time here. Go ahead and, and flip it on to the next few slides. This one here. So this is what we've been going through. And we almost get this sense, when you look at Matthew chapter 5 through 7, these are all of the mini-sermons, if I could say that. And right now, we're actually in the judging others. Nathan did a phenomenal job last week of talking about anxiety and all of that. You know, But when we look at this, maybe Jesus actually did have one main point. You know, we look at this as, as, as a series of about 18 different sermons, but maybe Jesus actually did have one main point. And then all of the content of chapters 5 through 7 is actually kind of surrounding that one main point. You know, was Jesus actually taking what we call the shotgun approach? This notion of, I'm just going to blast a bunch of stuff out there, hopefully something will stick? Or was there a main point to this sermon? You know, many scholars, as they've studied the life of Jesus, you know, when Jesus was walking around and teaching in each of the villages and the towns that he went to, many folks would say this was the content, actually, of his teaching. And what Matthew chose to do is he chose to, let's put it all together and sort of condense it all. And, sh and say this is what Jesus was teaching as he went around to all of the different towns. And kind of as, as, a, as an example of this, if you were to actually look in the book of Matthew chapter 7, where we're going to be parked a little bit today, the content here is on judging others. If you then actually go to the Gospel of Luke, Luke actually also talks about this same talk that he gave, but he puts it in almost a different context here, a different setting. And then even what Nathan spoke on last week about anxiety, you'll find it in different areas and different gospels here. So I guess what, what, what I'm, what I'm kind of recommending to us here as a, as a possibility is Jesus, as he lived here on this earth, as he went around from town to town, this was the content of what he was preaching, preaching that the repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. But his main point in all this, his main point in all this was the notion of this is what a life transformed by the gospel will look like. When we want to kind of get a definition of what does a life transformed by the gospel look like, then we can look at these two or three chapters, chapters 5, 6, and 7 in Matthew. And this, what we call now the sermon itself, it actually gives an, a glimpse of what a life transformed by the gospel looks like. Charles Quarles, he, in his commentary, he, he puts it this way. He says the sermon was intended to be a description of the effects of God's transforming grace. Life in the kingdom of God radically stands 
in contrast to life outside of the kingdom. So chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew are just that. What does life in the kingdom of God look like? What does a, what does a life radically transformed actually look like? And then he, he gives a series of things. And that's what we've been going on over the last few weeks here. So with this in mind, a life transformed by the gospel, we see now some additional evidence of what a life of repentance and a life in the kingdom of God should look like. You know, we saw how our prayers should look. Riley preached an excellent message on that one. We also saw a series that my wife preached on, Sharon, where she talked about how this is what a life looks like as it relates to anger, as it relates to even divorce as it relates to a number of other things, how we relate to other people. Johannes talked about fasting and this notion of, of giving, giving to, the, to the needy, being generous. This is what a life looks like that is completely transformed. And guys, today we're actually going to be parked in chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn in Matthew chapter 7. And what it appears here, verses 1 through 12, it appears as, again, we have two very separate topics here. The first six verses talks about judging, this notion of judgment. And then the last set of verses, verses 7 through 12, talks about this notion of ask, seek, and knock. Now guys, I, I'm, not, I'm not gifted like Jesus was. So I'm not going to actually attempt to handle both of these. I'm only going to be focusing on the first six. And I think if we were to summarize those last seven, or those last verses, verses seven through twelve, the notion of ask, seek, and knock, we'll actually see that we've, we've covered that in our prayer topics that we've been talking about, this notion of asking and seeking and knocking. But I want us to focus on these first six verses today. So let's go ahead and read. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. I'm reading out of the NIV. You'll see it on the screen behind me. This is what it says. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred, and do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and, turn, and tear you to pieces. These verses here are actually some of the most popular in the sense of well-known verses, both for believers and unbelievers alike. And, and the reality is, is many times we love to quote them out of context. So what I want us to do today is just kind of let's, let's go through this and look at what is it that Jesus is actually saying. You may have seen earlier in one of my previous slides there the title that I have for today. 
The sermon today is splinters and logs and hogs and dogs, because all four of those are actually covered here in this message. But what we have here, if you guys look at these, if you look at this passage, what we have here is what appears to be a contradiction interspersed with some of what I call Jesus's carpentry comedy. He starts out by saying in verse 1 and 2, he basically says, don't judge. Very clearly, you should not be judging. And then he continues to give this comedic illustration of what it, of which is in fact telling us that we need to be judging people. So let's, let's kind of unpack that and see, um, what gives here. So by looking at not only Matthew's account, but also Luke's account of the same teaching, it really becomes clear here that what Jesus is saying in those first verses is to not, he's not telling us not to judge, but he's actually saying that when we judge, we need to be careful in how we judge. In other words, when we think of the word judging, it's easy in the English language, we simply have one word for it. We call it judging. But when you actually look back into the Greek, they use a couple of different words here. But what Jesus is talking about here is not that we don't be correcting people or someone who is behaving incorrectly to, to, to kind of confront them in what they are doing and change, help them change their behavior. No, what he is saying is, I don't want you to be condemning people. You know, condemning is something that, that is left, if you could say this, it's left to God. But Jesus is actually saying that sometimes when people actually judge, they judge quite harshly. They judge harshly and, and the, 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 um, the action of the person is really what the focus is instead of the person. So we come down on what the person is doing and we end up focusing so much on what they are doing, we're really not concerned about who they are. And Jesus, again, is talking about here, he says, for in the same way that you judge others, This is how you're going to be treated. You know, don't condemn. But rather, when we see sin and shortcoming in people's lives, Scripture is very clear. As believers, we have a responsibility to confront them. But guys, the goal here is restoration. Our focus needs to be actually on the person and not the action. You see those two differences there. One, our focus is so much on the action, we forget the person. And the other way, our focus needs to be on the person and not so much on the action. The difference is in attitude. When we judge, we are attempting to restore. What I want us to do today, and I want to just kind of propose to you, are some principles for confronting other people as we look at this story. As we look at this passage, what are some principles? And they're going to be five simple principles that we come away with as we read 
this passage. Principle number one, confronting is biblical. Confronting is biblical. John chapter 7, verse 24, another gospel writer. He actually tells us, he says that we need to be judging, but with righteous judgment, with a right type of judgment, not with a wrong type of judgment. And guys, in order to confront effectively, it starts with us having a relationship. You know, if we turn to the illustration that Jesus was using, taking the splinter, the splinter of wood out of our friend's eye. You know, today, if you guys, I don't know how many of you have ever worked with wood before, or just in general, you can use the carpentry analogy, or if you want to, go with getting a speck of dust in your eye. But when you have that irritation in your eye, the reality is what we do today is we would probably go to a mirror and we would sit there and we would kind of open up our eye and look into the mirror and try and get out that speck of dust or that splinter. That's how you and I would do it today. But guys, the audience that Jesus was speaking with, they didn't have the benefit of having mirrors. And I don't believe that it was a, that it was a haphazard analogy that Jesus was using here, but he actually was, was saying, listen, if you, when you guys get specks in your eye, what do you do? You go to your friend and you call your friend over and you're like, Sharon, I have something in my eye. Can you please, can you please help? And she looks at it and she gets it out. Guys, that does not happen unless we have relationships with each other. And scripture talks about that again and again. This notion of, of we need to be in community with each other. We need to have these relationships with each other. We need to have people in our lives so that they can be taking the splinters out of our eyes. And that's my first plea really to us. Not so much focusing on us taking splinters out of other people's eyes, but the, this notion that we want people to be taking splinters out of our eye because of the irritation. And in order for that to happen, guys, we need to be living in community. We need to be having, I, I, I spoke to a group of people a, a number of, a number of weeks ago. You remember that story of the leper? That, that, that crippled guy that couldn't get into the house. Jesus, not the leper, the, the, the handicapped guy, he couldn't get into the house where Jesus was performing the miracles. And so what, what happens? He has his four friends. Those four friends actually bring him through the roof of the house and drop him down at Jesus' feet. Guys, having friends like that, who do you hang out with? Who is your community? Such an important, such an important concept who we are hanging out with. So the first point there is that confronting is indeed biblical, but to do it with a righteous judgment. Second point. Confront yourself first. You know, the, the metaphor that Jesus is using says, 
before you try and take the speck or the splinter out of someone's eye, you have this plank in your own eye. You know, who, we know, it's one of the reasons I love trying to incorporate humor in some capacity to, to my preaches. Why? Because this is what Jesus did. I mean, think about this. You know, do you think he, do you think there was some wood lying around there? And as he's actually giving this illustration, remember, he's a carpenter by vocation. <coughs> Stuffs it up to his eye and say, guys, before we can actually take the speck out of Sharon's eye, you know, get rid of that plank in your own eye. Another way to say this, is we need to look before we before we focus on our horizontal relationship with others focus on our vertical relationship with God take care of those those sins that are in our life those planks that are in our eyes before we focus on the splinters that are in others. Now, it, it needs to be said here, guys, that our standard, our standard is Jesus. It's not each other. Let me explain what I mean by that. If I have a splinter in my eye, again, metaphorically speaking, and somebody of you comes to me and you try and take this splinter out. In other words, you're pointing out to me, hey, you have something in your life that's not honoring and glorifying to God. It doesn't make sense. It's not right for me to say, yeah, but why don't you focus on the log in your own eye, please, before you focus on this. Why? Because our standard is not the other people. Our standard is Jesus. And Jesus doesn't have these logs in his eye. But again, the principles behind what we're talking about here is we need to be confronting ourselves first. And the reality is, guys, the reality is the likelihood of individuals listening to our corrective teaching when there are planks in our own eye are quite slim. And I think we know this just from doing life. You know, I'm probably not going to be taking dietary advice from incredibly obese people. You know, or I'm not going to be taking financial advice from people who are flat out broke. Okay? But that doesn't change sometimes what the message that they're giving. Why? Because our standard is not each other. Our standard needs to be God. But we as folks who are confronting, confront ourselves first. That's what Jesus is telling his followers here. Christ calls us to be humble. We need to seek to remove anything in our life that might be a stumbling block to others. Sort out our vertical relationship and then focus on the horizontal relationship, which is the life of a person transformed by the gospel. Confronting is biblical. Confront yourselves first. Third one, confront gently. You know the phrase, you catch more flies with honey 
than with vinegar is a common saying that applies quite nicely to this point. And really, this point, this notion of being gentle, that's the point of what this entire passage is about. Don't judge critically with a condemning attitude, but rather we need to be judging out of love and a genuine desire to help. You know, coming back to the metaphor, how do we proceed to take a speck or a splinter out of someone's eye? I mean, again, kind of follow this, this logic through. If you guys have something in your eye, a quite sensitive part of your body, what if I came at you with a hammer and chisels? Sean, you got something in your eye there. Let me help you take it out. Okay? Would it do the job? Probably would. I probably would get it out. Maybe a couple of other things. Or, or even, even a pair of tweezers. Think about that. Kind of a small instrument. If I came at you with a pair of pointy tweezers to try and take it out, same sort of a thing. You'd be like, yeah, no thanks. Would rather you didn't do that. Christ is asking us to be gentle. You know how... If we were to come at him, come at each other with these rough instruments or these sharp, pointy instruments, uh, the likelihood is that we would not even get the chance to remove the splinter from our friend's, our brother's eye. Um, or what's even worse, you, you may get the splinter out, but in the process of getting the splinter out, you've done even more damage, which is permanent eyesight damage. So how do we go about it? If you have a splinter in your eye, you know, you get, you get something, something wet, maybe a tissue or something, and then just very gently go up. Not even your fingernail. Go up to them. And of course, the principles here is you're not going to have somebody that you don't trust doing this. But how do we confront other people? We confront them gently. Wet tissue to go up there and gradually, slowly start working at the eye until you get the splinter out. The key here, you guys, is to be genuine. When a person knows that you have their best interests at heart, they will listen. The fourth, confront with Scripture. So we have confronting is biblical, confront yourself first, confront gently, now confront with Scripture. When confronting a friend, we need to be basing our concerns on Scripture and not on our personal feelings. Again, the standard of righteous living is the Word of God, not our personal opinion. Keep the focus on what Scripture says about topics rather than our own arguments. And then in doing this, you're actually leading the people to God. You're leading the people to His Word. Second Timothy talks about how the Word of God, all Scripture, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. But that only happens if we keep our focus on 
the Word of God, on Scripture when we confront, and not our personal opinions. You guys, being in wine country here and in vineyards, if you guys ever get a chance and, and, and walk through a vineyard here, take note. You know, when Jesus gives the illustration that he is the brand, or he is the vine and we are the branches, I don't know if you guys have, have paid much attention to that, but where the branch actually connects to the vine, there is absolutely no flexibility. And where we connect to Jesus, which is the cross, there need be no flexibility. But you know, as you get further out on the branch, we're still connected, but what happens? There's quite a bit more flexibility, and I think if we were to approach each other more like that, recognizing that where we are connected to Christ, which is the cross, there is no flexibility there. But then there are these other issues that come out here. You know, should I wear shorts to church or not? Should I play country music in church or not? You know, is it okay to have actual wine at communion? Or should we use grape juice? I mean, you have these issues that are, that are getting, that are, that are, they're still connected, but they're a little bit further out there. But one of the things that we love to do many times as Christians is we zero in on that action and we judge. The focus becomes the action rather than the person. And what Christ is telling us to do here is keep the important thing the important thing. Focus on Scripture, not on our own opinion. Now, obviously, guys, this takes discernment because probably all of us would say, but it is biblical. Again, the, the whole teaching here that Jesus is giving is is. It's not a prescriptive sort of a way. If you do this, this, and this, then you have judged correctly. No, these are principles that we are to live our life by. The final point that I wanted to bring. Verse 6 is talking about confronting at the right time. The passage there talks about giving what is holy. Don't give what is holy to dogs and don't cast your pearls before swine or pigs. You know, when we talk about pearls in the Old or in the New Testament, Jesus has given parables on this before. And when he's talking actually about the pearls, he's actually talking about the gospel. Talking about something that is holy, something that is precious. And what Jesus is saying here is that we need to use discernment here. There are some people, guys, that are simply not ready for this eye surgery. They're not ready for it. And we need to be desirous to tell others about who God is and the hope that we have within us. But guys, not every conversation that we have with people needs to be about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. 
There are some people that just aren't ready for it. We're not saying they're not ready ever. Just at this moment in time, they may not be ready for it. Eugene Peterson, he's a, a, a guy who, who um, has a translation that he, that he wrote, or a paraphrase, some people would call it, uh, called The Message, The Message Translation, or The Message Paraphrase. He actually tells this story. It's a personal testimony of him when he was a kid. I wanted to read it to you on this topic here. So this is what Eugene Peterson writes. He says when he was a kid, I had been prepared for the wider world of neighborhood and school by memorizing, bless those who persecute you and turn the other cheek. I don't know how Garrison Johns knew that about me. Some sixth sense bullies have, I suppose. Most afternoons after school, he would catch me and beat me up. He also found out I was a Christian and taunted me with Jesus sissy. I arrived home most days bruised and humiliated. My mother told me this had always been the way of Christians in the world and that I had better get used to it. She also said I was supposed to pray for him. Well, one day I was with seven or eight friends when Garrison caught up with us in the afternoon, and he started jabbing me. And that's when it happened. Something snapped. For a moment, the Bible verses disappeared from my consciousness, and I grabbed Garrison. To my surprise, and his, I was stronger than he was, and I wrestled him to the ground. I sat on his chest, pinned his arms to the ground with my knees, and he was helpless at my mercy. It was too good to be true. I hit him in the fist with my fists. It felt good. I hit him again. Blood spurted from his nose, a lovely crimson in the snow. I said to Garrison, say uncle. He wouldn't say it. I hit him again. More blood. Then my Christian training reasserted itself. I said, say I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. He wouldn't say it, so I hit him again. More blood. I tried again. Say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And he said it. Garrison Johns was my first convert. So, guys, I'm not recommending necessarily that approach. And, and I, I want you to hear what I am not saying. I'm not saying we shouldn't tell others about God. It's about discernment here. You know, in God's Word, we actually see a number of examples of this. Luke chapter 23, um, Jesus is actually before Herod. He's been arrested, brought before Herod, and Herod began asking Jesus all kinds of questions. But when you go back and look at Luke chapter 23... Herod didn't have this sincere desire to actually hear about Jesus and to know about Jesus. And Jesus knew this. And Scripture says that he remained silent. He didn't give what was holy to dogs. He didn't cast his pearls 
before swine. Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas were speaking to the Jews at Antioch in Pisidia. It became, it became clear the Jews were no longer interested. And what did Paul and Barnabas tell the Jews there? They said, okay, we're done. We're going to leave you and go to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 15 happens again in Corinth this time. Similar storyline where they're speaking to the Jews in Corinth and they begin to oppose Paul's teaching. And what does Paul do? He says, we're going to leave you and go to the Gentiles. Luke chapter 10, when Jesus sends out the 72, if you guys recall this, when he sends out the 72, he gives some instructions. He says, when you go into these towns, if they don't receive you, if they don't want to listen to you, if they don't want to hear what you're saying, shake the dust off your feet. Go to the next one. Timothy Keller, on giving advice regarding this topic, says which I, I love this quote. He says, you have to honor the pace of God in their lives. We have to honor, and that takes discernment, guys. You have to honor the pace of God in their lives. And sometimes it's just simply not the right time for us to be talking about these things. And God wants us to use discernment in this. So guys, this section of Jesus' teaching is really about relationships, verses 1 through 6 here, how we should relate to other people. God calls us to live in community, not to live as islands or as these silos. And in doing this, when we live in community with other people, we're also called to challenge each other, confront each other, to live more holy lives, not in a condemning way, but in a loving and gentle way, with the person's best interests in mind.